And you can keep going down this rabbit hole and saying, okay, well, the quickest that the Fed ever cut an interest rate is 1.4 months, or the average that they cut after the last hike is six and a half months, or the longest that they took after the last interest rate hike is 14.7 months. And then finally, you can add in one more input that just says something like this. What's the speed at which they cut the interest rate? You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. The following podcast contains options-related material. Prior to listening to today's podcast, all listeners should read and familiarize themselves with the characteristics and risks of standardized options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Welcome, everybody, to today's podcast. I am delighted to have back on the program again, Neil Azus, founder and chief investment officer at Rareview Capital Management, which is a registered investment advisor. Neil, welcome back. How are you? Thank you, Andrew. Always great to be with you and Interactive Brokers. You're, you're always very welcome on this channel, sir. Um, now, let's just get straight into it. We talk about the Fed and all things fixed income when, when, when we talk to Neil Azus. Um, our last podcast aired in I think the middle of June and the the FOMC had raised rates by a surprising at the time 75 basis points I think that lifted it to 1.75 percent one of the things Neil you highlighted at that time was the cumulative misery within consumer confidence data um tell us how have things changed in the third quarter uh, thanks for bringing that word or that phrase back up, cumulative misery. So just quick background on that. Uh, the concept comes from the idea that we don't know what's in front of us. And so it's a combination of war, economics, uh, the inflation, uh, the interest rate hiking cycle. We just don't know what that end is like. And so we call it a cumulative misery, where in past episodes, even in the financial crisis or in the pandemic, we had end results, meaning we knew when we were gonna get a vaccine in the pandemic or some version of that. We knew that the Fed was there to ring fence it. Right now, we're just kind of left out in the wilderness and that's where that term cumulative misery comes from. So what's different today on September 1st versus uh, mid-June or near the end of June? There are several things, uh, but overall, there's still a level of that cumulative misery. But first off, just on a, on a light note, it's the summertime. People are outdoors. So on the margin, they're a little less gloomy as they forget about their worries for a while. The second thing is gasoline prices. Uh, they've come down for somewhere around 70 days in a row, uh, primarily based on mm -hmm. uh, the Biden administration releasing the strategic petroleum reserves. So that's had the desired effect. It, very interestingly, as a reminder, uh, gasoline matters. You know, the, the recent consumer confidence data releases show that this is the number one impact on sentiment. It's, it, it's truly amazing how much just getting from A to B in a car still matters. So that's a big change. Yeah. Uh, and then thirdly, and this is very important for people and, and, and relating this cumulative misery phrase back to the markets or capital markets, if you will, that at the end of July, right in the middle of our last, you know, uh, uh, interview here or podcast, the Federal Reserve passed, quote unquote, their so-called neutral interest rate, which is the equilibrium level where the economy is just, you know, tr uh, trucking along. It's not overheating and it's not too weak. And that happened at the end of July when they raised the interest rate another 75 basis points or three quarters mm -hmm. of a percent. 
And therefore, what that's really like in Fed speak terms is it's the transition from the early cycle to the late cycle. So using a sports metaphor, it's like the halftime or the seventh inning stretch in baseball. So there, there is some semblance now that the end is closer than the beginning. And that has a big impact on that term cumulative misery because we, we, we can see potentially light at the tunnel, whereas prior to being below the neutral rate, we didn't know when that light at the end of the tunnel could be seen. Well, you, you talk about warm weather lifting confidence. We're, we're heading towards the autumn, the fall, and the winter. And, you know, a, a, a big problem behind all of this has been inflation, rising energy prices, and so on. You talked about the structure of inflation that it had four drivers, energy, the supply chain, housing, and wages. And you concluded that it's, it's likely to remain, or inflation is, is likely to re remain somewhere between 3 and 5% for at least the medium term. Has anything improved on the inflation front that you can see, Neil? Changes your sense of where that terminal Fed funds rate might right. be? So broadly speaking, nothing has really changed in the last two months. Mm -hmm. On the micro level, as mentioned previously, the big change is gasoline prices coming down, but everything else is a wash. Meaning if there's a small improvement in rental prices, that's being offset by higher wages. So regarding the concept of inflation being sticky for longer, those metrics are still staying at a very high level. And when I think about that and how it impacts the terminal rate, which is where we think the Fed will end the interest rate hiking cycle or where the 10-year yield will be at that time, the biggest issue that I see with market agents is that they focus on the words peak inflation or the rate of change of inflation. And, and, I, and, and, and most people can appreciate that because traditional markets, especially something trading-oriented, always moves off of a peak or a trough or the rate of change something. However, when it comes to inflation, that's an exception to the rule. Let, let me give you a real life example or a human example of that, Andrew. If you weighed 200 pounds and you gain eight and a half percent of your body mass this year, you now weigh 217 pounds. That means you've, your body mass has increased. Now, if you were a market process, uh, agent and you said to yourself, okay, great, we stopped gaining weight at 217 pounds, that's a bullish scenario, right? That Or that's less inflationary. And that is true. You may have peaked out at 217, and the rate of change going from 200 to 217 has certainly slowed to almost zero. But just because you stopped gaining weight or the pace slowed at which you're gaining the weight, you still weigh 217 pounds, and your body mass is not shedding anything. And that means over the next several years, that additional body mass will continue to weigh on your health. And that's where we're at now. So yes, inflation may have peaked at a very high level. That rate of change may have slowed, but it's the risk in the market is, is that per people perceive that to leading to a pivot or quote unquote uh, change in policy stance by the Federal Reserve, or that they think that's an immediate adjustment back down to the 200 pound body weight. That's just not how it works when it comes to inflation. So as a result, the uh, terminal rate uh, while it's up at a high level, somewhere between call it 3.8 and 4% in the market's pricing or discounting mechanism, it's likely that it could stay up there for some quite some time if the Fed remains in their tight policy stance or keeps it up there. And the idea is, is that the longer they keep the rate at a higher level or they pause after their last hike, then organically, if you weigh 217 pounds, it will in, it, it'll, it'll psychologically get entrenched into the system 
and we can then gradually bring it down organically back towards that 200 pounds. That, that's kind of how I see it, and that's where it's set up. And I think after the most recent Jackson Hole Symposium, where Chairman Powell of the Federal Reserve said that we might be at a higher level for longer, the stock market started to um, appreciate that notion that it's not always just about a peak in the rate of a peak in inflation rate or the rate of change. It's about getting it out of the system and ensuring it's not entrenched. You and I normally get into a discussion about the shape of the yield curve, but but this time let, let's talk about how bond markets typically behave during a tightening cycle. You, you recently published some startling data surrounding what the journey of interest rates looks like from the moment the FOMC begins tightening policy. Just explain to the audience, Neil, what that journey looks like. So just quick definition so we make sure the audience understands the different terminology. There are always various terms or ways people use to describe interest rates. One is the nominal interest rate, one is the real interest rate, and one is the break-even rate. So very simply, the nominal interest rate is the difference between the real interest rate and the break-even rate. And the break-even rate, Andrew, is the difference in the yield between inflation-protected and nominal debt. And so the way you measure how things change um, during an interest rate cycle is to look at what real interest rates are doing and what break-evens are doing. And at any given moment, they can go both higher, one can go higher, one can move sideways, one can go lower, one mm. can move sideways, or both of them could move lower. And that's how you move across the interest rate yep. hiking cycle in this case. So the further out you go um, and you shift regimes towards ultimately the Fed tightening, and what that translates into at this moment, for example, is that the real interest rate is now rising at a rapid pace and the break-even rate is now falling at a rapid pace. And the degree of the blunt force of the Fed's hand engineering tighter financial conditions and lowering the inflation expectations, in theory, should have some significant market impacts um, for that regime. And, and, and those range anything in, you know, in, in the currency market to a universally stronger dollar, which we're seeing across the board. Uh, and the equity market, on the margin, it's bearish for risk assets. For commodities, it's bearish. We've seen crude oil yep. come down dramatically, right? Credit spread should widen, um, but yep. maybe the total return with, when you bake in the yield to the, what you own m might offset that. But in general, they tend to widen. And, and, and volatility is broadly higher, as we're seeing predominantly in fixed income currencies and commodities at the moment. And, you know, we're moving down that path. And, and so every several months, as they tighten policy further from something moderately restrictive to something aggressively restrictive, those directions of real yields and break-evens tend to start to move in different ways, and they weigh uh, or benefit certain asset classes. And, and right now, we're in a, in a regime where uh, this is what we call the breaking point. So sometime over the next several months, the Fed's strong blunt force instrument of raising interest rates uh, should lead to real yields rising to a point that is extremely restricted from a financial conditions index. Uh, and then their goal, which has been the goal really since March, is to engineer the inflation rate down or the inflation expectations down. And, and they're winning at that battle right now. What, what, why do bond investors start pricing in rate cuts when the Fed's still tightening? Uh, that, that's a question that, that kind of gripped me when I was trading interest rates 20 years ago uh, and, and how the curve moves shape before the action's over. I, explain that, Neil. It's a fair question. 
one that can be looked at two ways. Uh, one is intellectually, or how we would describe it subjectively uh, or qualitatively. And then the second door or version would be something quantitatively. And I'll just touch on both. In, in my opinion, um, something that's subjective would be, you know, we're given forecasts and we're given forward guidance by the Fed. You, you know, I might interpret a Fed speech a certain way. I might watch the economic data closely a certain way. And then ultimately financial conditions tighten until something breaks. And when it breaks historically, the Fed tends to pivot, you know, in a reasonably short period of time. Those are just the what I would view yeah. as the pedestrian reasons why the bond market begins to price in uh, interest rate cuts this far in advance. The more what I would call the professional portfolio approach to the answer, which is more quantitative, uh, goes something like this, Andrew. And, and it has a lot to do with thinking of big data, machine learning, knowing all the st statistics. So if I wake up today and I know that the current Fed funds rate is at two and a half percent, and then I told you that the Federal Reserve's neutral rate or that equilibrium level that I referenced earlier in this discussion is around 2.4 percent. So for all intents and purposes, using a blunt instrument, we're at the Fed's targeted neutral rate that they put out in their quarterly projections. Now, knowing that information, we can also add in a bunch of other things that we could extract if I had a machine that, that extracted big data pretty quickly. It will tell you that the average amount of the Fed hikes interest rates above the neutral rate is 1.21%. The extreme amount of Fed hikes historically over every cycle has gone up by 172 basis points above that. We know that based on what's priced into the yield curve, that the last interest rate hike is expected in December of this year. And you can keep going down this rabbit hole and saying, okay, well, the quickest that the Fed ever cut an interest rate is 1.4 months, or the average that they cut after the last hike is six and a half months, or the longest that they took after the last interest rate hike is 14.7 months. And then finally, you can add in one more input that just says something like this. What's the speed at which they cut the interest rate? In fact, historically, they cut that interest rate 2.4 times faster than the speed at which they hiked the interest rate. In this case, that would be pretty magnificent given how fast we raised rates. But historically, the hiking mm. cycles are over a one to two year period, not a six month period. So my point is, is that mm. anybody with a machine, anybody that can extract these statistics, know all of these various variables based on quantitative probabilistic outcomes and historical precedent. And so if you're given that set of data in advance and I told you what bet would you like to make? Would you, you know, if the terminal rate that we referenced earlier was at 4% by December, would you rather bet at a casino that the interest rate is going to go to 6% first or 2% next? And when you look at how the market is positioned or the pricing of that probabilistic outcome, the market looks something like this. It's a 7% chance they would go to 6%, and there's a 28% chance that they would go down to 2% next. So you've got four to one odds that they're going to lower the interest rate. And so when somebody sees that, they just said, okay, I'm going to go bet on that. And, and they know the sequencing. And, and it's been done like this every time. It's never different this time. And so the professional portfolio construction is to embrace those probabilistic outcomes and those historical precedents. And because we know all of this information now, which is unique to the fixed income market, you cannot get this level of transparency uh, in other asset classes because you can recreate these scenarios via the yield curve uh, and looking at the vast array of instruments, it's easy to say to yourself, okay, 
I see, I know when the cuts happen. I know how much they, when they start, how long they go and how much they cut by. Let's now go make bets along those probabilistic outcomes. Those are the two different reasons. One's subjective, one's quantitative. Very good. Let's let's just now compare two markets, bonds and stocks. The the VIX measure of volatility is back at around a 10 year average. And that's even after we've, uh, we've, we've kind of stocks have fallen from, uh, following the, the Jackson Hole comments. Um, whereas the move, the bond market version of the same index is still relatively high. Can, can you put, shed some light on that for us? Uh, sure. So real quick, Andrew, I think it's always important, like I did earlier, just quick definition of the both. So so, so the audience understands it, right? The VIX index, is, as everybody knows, is a financial benchmark that's designed to be an up-to-the-minute market estimate of uh, expected volatility uh, in the S&P 500. Uh, a lot of times, Andrew, uh, qualitatively, people associate fear with the VIX index, despite the fact that it's mechanically calculated mm-hmm. <laughs> by using options uh, quotations, right? Yep. And then in the fixed income market, they have equivalent one of this called the move index, which is just a weighted index across the yield curve of, of that same implied volatility on uh, short-term treasury options. So a very similar uh, mechanical or related approach. And a big question this year has been, why has the two not moved in tandem? Meaning why is the move index very high and why is the VIX more contained to its normal averages? And there are lots of reasons for them and I'll just give you several of them so you're getting an idea. So just interestingly enough, you know, uh, now that you looked, uh, just asked that question, I was just pulling something up while we speak. And it's interesting, the move index uh, has now in the last week broken the streak in terms of a record period above its 200 day moving average. The last time it, it was, you know, this many days above it was back in 2008. The Fed has kept the market reasonably guessing whether they're going to go from 50 basis points next or 75 basis points of a hike next or drop all the way back down to 25. And then when you think about how many uh, Federal Reserve meetings there are between now and the end of 2023, let's say there's 11 meetings and you have all these different variations. I could go 25, 50 or 75, or maybe I even cut a rate. So as you can see, when you build out that matrix, there's hundreds of permeations of what could happen next. So the move index is realizing the volatility of what the Federal Reserve is doing, and it's justified to stay up at those levels. On the flip side, um, there's a lot of reasons of why the VIX is lower and really what drives the VIX. So in the big picture, historically, the VIX is driven by earnings from the S&P, which then drive the S&P price up and down. Uh, In this case, Earnings, despite all these headwinds that we've been talking about for the last six months, have actually held in reasonably well. Uh, the, the second quarter earnings were uh, not as bad as anybody expected, and the outlooks were actually incrementally okay. And so that's that's the first one. Uh, the second thing is is that the the information that the the equity market knows regarding the bond market, it already knows it. It knows that the next 150 basis points or 100 of interest rate hikes are coming between now and December. So it's not new information. Earlier in the year, that was new information. We didn't know if we were going to go from zero to one percent, zero to two percent, or zero to three percent. It's no longer guessing. It knows it's at four percent. So that's a, that's the second reason. The the third one is is that um, you know not to get into too many details, but certainly there are lots of different places uh, or services that monitor positioning, um, being underweight indices or benchmarks, uh, long positioning, short positioning, prime brokerage margin balances all those things that we see in, in, in financial uh, media every day. And the reality is, is that the stock market is significantly underweight its benchmark. So as a result, 
there's no one that's really reaching for protection on the stock market because Bozier levels are already down. Meaning if I had $1 and I usually buy protection that would drive up the VIX, I don't have to do that anymore if my exposure is now at 40 cents or 50 cents of the market. I just, I'm willing to wear the downside because I'm not going to make any money on anything from here. I'd rather own it than sell more of it. And then there are a few other things. So just in general, you know, when the VIX is at 25 is vastly different than when it's at, at, at 15. In order to stay at that level, the way the mechanics work, you have to move two plus percent a day in the stock market just to break even on that volatility. That's a lot. So as time goes on and we get more accustomed to the Federal Reserve interest rate hiking cycle, uh, the market doesn't move up or down by 2% anymore like it did in the springtime. And so that's another reason. And then there's some several other minor ones that we could go into, but you, you get the idea. The profile is different. And just because there's volatility in other asset classes, it doesn't necessarily need to bleed into the VIX on a linear basis. Uh, ultimately, those fundamentals of what drive the VIX end up taking over after the initial burst higher. Would you say, Neil, that we're, we're beyond the point of an intermeeting move on, on rates from the Fed? I would personally say that. There's always a chance that we wake up in, in mid-September and the inflation data, either the CPI economic release in, in mid-September or the University of Michigan long-term inflation expectations have some dramatic upside surprise that could lead to the bond market pricing in something on an intra-meeting basis. But I would just say that, you know, that's somewhere between, I'm making it simple, I think it's like September 12th to September 15th area. The meeting is on September 21st. The idea that they would need to react five days prior to that seems pretty aggressive yeah. to me. Um, what they would probably, a more realistic scenario would be is that if the market was pricing in 75 for September following those types of surprises, there would be some semblance in the in the pricing that puts the probability higher saying that, hey, there's a chance that they go to 100. They go by one full percentage point instead of just three quarters of a percent. Uh, that's that's probably a more realistic scenario. Also, secondarily, uh, Andrew, it's important, again, to recognize the juncture where we're at, which is late cycle versus early cycle. In an early cycle, when it's just you know moderately aggressive, there's a lot of scope for them to surprise the upside, which is what they did in June in reaction to the inflation data metrics that came out. The idea that they would do that this aggressively when they're above the neutral rate, that takes a little bit of the of the argument down. Uh, so I, I, I struggle seeing that, but sure, there, there might be a non-negligible opportunity that that occurs. Neil Azus, founder and CIO of Revue Capital Management with us here at ibcarpodcast.com. Thank you very much for joining me today, Neil. Andrew, thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. Have a great day. And you and uh, to the rest of the audience for all of your trading education needs, don't forget to check us out at tradersacademy.online. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Neil. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about interactive brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, 
and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry, or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary, seek professional advice. Futures are not suitable for all investors. The amount you may lose may be greater than your initial investment. Before trading futures, please read the CFTC Risk Disclosure. A copy and additional information are available at ibkr.com. Options involve risk and are not suitable for all investors. For more information, read the Characteristics and Risks of Standardized Options, or ODD, which may be accessed through the link found in the show's notes or podcast description page.